Section 10 of The Moon Master by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 10 Jerry let go of the fiber basket he was dragging and drew his knife as he sprang to meet the assault. A sharp cutting edge was unknown to these workers in copper. Jerry slipped under the raised bludgeoning copper weapon to plunge the knife into a white throat. Then, without a look at the body, he helped Winslow, struggling with another load. They completed the barricade. A heap of fungus made a raised place where Jerry leaped. Commanding the top of the pile that blocked the choked throat of the passage, he was ready for the next figure that leaped wildly up. It would take them a while, Jerry saw, to learn of his sickling death that struck at them from close quarters. His knife flashed again and again as he took the men one at a time and let their limp bodies roll back to the passage beyond. The assault was checked when Jerry shouted to his companion, Tie the rope around me, he ordered, up under my arms. Then you go on up. When you get there, pull up. And for the Lord's sake, pull fast. Go on, he shouted. I can hold them for a while. He turned swiftly to take a leaping body upon the red point of his knife. He felt the rope about him as he fought, knew by its twitching when Winslow started the long climb, and prayed dumbly for strength to hold his weak fortress till the other could hoist him up to the top. He was fighting blindly as they came on in endless succession, the figures of frenzied priests leaping grotesquely beyond. Only the strategic position he had taken allowed him to turn the wild assault again and again. They could only reach him by ones and twos, but the end must come soon. There were priests tearing at the foot of the barricade. The cold winds that came down from above revived him, but it helped the figures ripping at the fiber cords. The dry fungus fragments whirled gaily away and down the passage in the wind. The wind. The draft was blowing from him, directly upon his attackers. Jerry struggled and clinched with another that bounded beside him, and knew as he fought that a weapon was at hand. His knife found the lower edge of copper, and the figure screamed as he rolled it down the slope. He slipped the knife into his left hand as he fumbled with his right. His precious matches. He struck one on the rock. It broke in his trembling fingers. Another. There were so few left. He drew it with infinite care on the surface of rock. The figures below tore in frenzy at the weakening barricade, while yet others stood waiting at this sign of some new form of magic. They shouted again as they had when, those long days ago, he had lighted a cigarette before their horrifying gaze. Jerry shielded the tiny blaze in his hand to bring it beneath a papery leaf beside him. The flame flashed and dwindled. He dared not drop back to set fire to the base of the heap. But even in the exhaustion and strain of the moment, Jerry Foster still knew the value of the showman's tricks in reaching the fears of these white-faced fighters. With grandiloquent gesture, he raised another of the tindery fragments and ignited it from the first. Another. And he had the beginning of a fire. He lit another piece, and when he had it blazing, dropped it behind him and kept on with the show. 
A large piece became a flaming torch, and he waved it before him and laughed to see the warriors cringe. A cloud of smoke was billowing about him. He leaped to safety through a rising wall of flame. The rear slope of the barricade became a furnace. The wind behind him swept the smoke clouds down the passage. He heard and sank back weakly on the ground as it came to him. The screaming riot where a mob of terrified warriors fought and struck to turn the horde that clamored behind them and pushed them on. The blast roared over the heaped fuel and poured downward from the crest. The noise of the retreat went silent in the distance. Spent and exhausted, Jerry Foster lay panting upon the stone floor. The breath of cold and life came down the long shaft from the crater. Had Winslow gained the top? Was he equal to the climb? Jerry hardly felt the jerking of the rope about his shoulders, but he knew as, in frantic haste, it drew him scraping up the long side of the shaft. The biting cold above revived him, and again a scene of desolation was spread before his eyes. Winslow fumbled with the knots and released him from the rope. Come on, he shouted, and extended a helping hand as they leaped and raced across the rocky floor. Jerry again was vividly, strongly alive as the cold wind swept him. He leaped hugely through the whirling wisps of dried-out vegetation. The sun had stripped the surface of every living thing. Again the rocky slopes rose naked in the rosy light of evening. The sun was hidden below a distant range of jagged hills. The long night was begun. You're going the wrong way, Jerry shouted. We left it over there. He stopped the point where the sun had set. See, that's where we fought the beasts. Come on, repeated Winslow. Hurry. We mustn't lose out now. I flew the ship over this way while I was up here before. A ridge of rock cut off the view where Winslow pointed. Bully for you, Jerry shouted, and turned to follow. They stopped as the slope ahead from its multitude of honeycomb caverns, erupted men. The priests were ahead, and behind them swarmed their men. Vindictive and revengeful, the wily enemy was fighting to the end. The two stopped in consternation. "'What's the use?' demanded Jerry. His voice was tired, utterly hopeless. "'And the ship's right over there.' "'A million miles away,' said Winslow, slowly, "'as far as we're concerned.' The army was sweeping down the long slope. They had found their quarry. There were other figures, too, pouring from the throat of the volcano. White naked figures that swarmed in growing numbers and rushed across upon them from the rear. Trapped, said Jerry Foster savagely, and we almost made it. He rose wearily to his feet. We'll take it standing. The armored warriors were approaching. In leaping triumph, they raced to be the first ones at the death. The shouts of the priests were ringing encouragement in their ears. But the leaders from the rear were nearer. One deep breath Jerry drew as he turned to meet them, then stared, astonished, as the figures swept past. They streamed by in confusion. They were armed with rocks, with clubs, or copper metal. Some even carried bars of gold above their heads. They came in a great swarm that swept past and beyond them, and they met 
like an engulfing wave, the bounding figures of the men in copper. Smothered and lost were the warriors in the horde that poured increasingly on. The wave before Jerry's eyes swept on over the crest, while he still stood in amazed unbelief at the battle that raged. It was Marana who brought understanding. He turned to see her kneel in sobbing, thankful abasement at his feet. Marahana, her people, she had saved them. There was time needed for the full force of the truth to banish the hopeless despair from his heart. Then he stooped to raise the crouching figure with arms that were suddenly strong. The pale rose light of the departed sun above shone softly within a rocky valley of the moon. It tipped the tall crags with lavender hues, and it touched with soft gleaming reflections a blunted cylinder of aluminum alloy. The valley was silent, save for the hushed whispers of wandering thousands who peopled the enclosing hills. The rushing roar from the cylinder itself, where the inventor was testing his machine. There were figures in priestly robes, scores of them, and they were surrounded by a white throng that, silent and watchful, held them captive. Beyond, in the open, where bare rock made a black rolling floor, there were two who stood alone. The golden figure of a girl, and beside her, Jerry Foster, in wordless indecision. Behind him was the ship. Its muffled thunder came softly to his unheeding ears. He looked at the girl steadily, thoughtfully. Gone was all trace of her imperious dignity. The Princess Marahana was now all woman, and Jerry, looking into her dark eyes, read plainly the yearning and adoration in their depths. The Princess Marahana had forgotten her deference to the god in her love for the man. The tale was told in her flushed face, openly unashamed. And his gray eyes were thoughtful and tender as he gazed into hers. He was thinking, was Jerry Foster, of many things, and he was weighing them carefully. His hands clasped and unclasped had something safely hidden in his pocket. He had taken it from his pack. He had wanted something for Marahana, something she would treasure. And now she was offering him herself. He could take her with him, take her to that far-off world that she never dreamed existed. He could show her the things of that world, its wonders and beauties. He could train her in its ways. He would watch over her, love her, and she would be miserable and heartsick for the sight of this awful desolation. He knew it. He told himself it was the truth, and he hated himself for the telling. The voice of Winslow aroused him. The inventor had come from his ship. We had better be starting, he said. The slim figure of the girl in her robe of pure gold trembled visibly. She knew it was plain, the import of the words. She spoke rapidly, beseechingly, in her own tongue. The words were liquid music in the air. Then, realizing their impotence, she resorted to her poor vocabulary of their own strange sounds. No, she said, and shook her head vehemently. No, no. She motioned to wait, and she called loud and clear across the silence to her own people. There was a stir about the priests. 
one in the robes and headdress of the high priest was brought forward, led by two others of her men. They stopped a few steps from her and bowed low. Again she called, and the leaders among the vast throng came, too, and made their obeisance before her. She turned then to Jerry, and now it was Marahana, Princess of the Moon, who stood quiet and poised before him. The light he saw made soft wavelets of radiance in her hair, and her eyes were still glowing and tender. She stepped forward toward the priest. The helmet of the sun god was upon his head. It marked him, Jerry knew, as the master of their world. True, they had bowed in submission to that other master, whose vile head lay horrible and harmless on the floor of the great hall. They had believed in the commands the priest had pretended to receive from him. But this emblem on the helmet marked the leader of the race, the master of this world, for these simple folk. Marahana reached her slim hands and lifted the thing of gold. She turned and held it above the startled eyes of Jerry Foster, and she placed it upon his head with all the dignity that became a queen. A word from her and the men before him dropped into humbleness to the ground. The Princess Marahana was among them in honoring salutation to their king. Jerry was beyond speech. Not so, Winslow. It looks to me, he said dryly, as if you were being offered the kingdom of the earth, I mean the moon. Think it over, Jerry. Think it over. And Jerry Foster thought it over, deeply and soberly. He could rule this people, he and Marahana, rule in peace and quiet and comfort. He could bring them knowledge and wisdom of infinite help. He could make their new civilization a measure of advancement for a whole race. He could teach them, train them, instruct them. And he and Marahana, there would be children who would be princes born, could be happy for a time. And then, and then he would be old, old and lonely for his kind, hungering and longing for his own people. As Marahana would be on earth, so would he be here. His decision was formed, and with it he knew he must not hurt the heart of Marahana. She loved him, Jerry Foster the man. He must leave her as Jerry Foster, the god, the child of the sun. He stood suddenly to his full height, and who shall say that for a moment the man did not approach the stature of divinity, for he was wholly kind. He placed a hand upon the head of the kneeling girl before him. He held her in her submissive pose, then, turning to the waiting men, he spoke in measured tones. I thank you, he said, and the words came from a full heart, but my place is not here. I leave you with one more worthy. Before their wondering gaze, he removed the glowing circlet from his head. He leaned to place it on the head of Marahana, humbled before him. With strong hands, he raised her to her feet. His look, so tender yet reserved, was full of meaning. She followed his every sign. He waved once toward the sun, hidden behind the distant hills. He pointed again to Winslow and himself and to their shining ship, and again he marked the going of the sun. His meaning was plain. These children of the sun must return to their far-off home. 
he turned now to Marahana. In his hand was the object he had taken from his pack. It was a treasured thing, this locket of platinum on its thin and lacy chain. It had been his mother's, and he thought of her now as he opened the clasp to show his own face framed within the oval. His mother, she had worn this, and she would have approved, he knew, of its disposal. Gravely he faced Marahana. He showed her the picture within the case, then held it aloft where all might see. He closed it and taught her the pressure that released the spring. Then, with gentle dignity that made of the gesture a rite, he placed the chain about the neck of Princess Marahana, queen now of the people of the moon. And he knew that he gave into her keeping the only relic of a being from the sun. It marked her beyond all future question with a symbol of mastery, and it made of him a god. And even a queen may not aspire to such a one. It was well that Winslow's hand was there to guide him as he walked with unseeing eyes toward the ship. Time may lose at times all meaning and measure. Moments become timeless. It seemed ages to Jerry Foster when Winslow spoke in casual tones. I'm going straight up, he said, above the generator's roar. Then we'll swing around above the other side. We'll follow the sun, make the full circle of the moon before we start. Jerry neither thought nor heard. His eyes were close to a window of thick glass. Below him was a shrinking, dwindling landscape, windswept and desolate. There was a multitude of faces turned, worshipping toward the sky. On one, who stood apart in tiny loneliness, his vision centered. He watched and strained his aching eyes until the figure was no more. Only the pale rose of a dying sun and a torn volcanic waste that tugged strangely at his heart. Yes, he answered mechanically, yes. We'll go round with the sun. A couple of sun gods. He laughed strangely as he regarded his companion. If Winslow wondered at the weariness in the voice, he made no sign. He was busy with a rheostat that made thunderous roaring of the blast behind their ship, that swung them in a sweeping arc through velvet skies, away from the far side of the moon, to follow the path of the setting sun, homeward bound. End of Part 10 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas. End of The Moon Master by Charles Diffin.